From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida... Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. Dan Mullen made regaining the Gator standard a key part of his mandate when he came to Gainesville, and this week we saw a number of other programs answer that call in their own ways. For baseball, it was a wild 20-7 thrashing of Florida State. And for track and field, it was yet another national championship. Now the buck passes to basketball, with all eyes on the Gators as they fight to keep their postseason hopes afloat at the SEC tournament. On today's show... We'll discuss the opening of spring football, former offensive lineman Trent Brown's record NFL deal, the NCAA indoor track and field title, baseball's flex against the Seminoles, and the worst contracts in sports history with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. Then we'll chat with record-breaking track star Grant Holloway about his remarkable contributions to this latest title and what he plans to do next. But first, Mike White's team may be in Nashville, but there's certainly no guarantee of dancing just yet. Depending on who you ask, the Gators are either right on the bubble or just outside of it, so the pressure to impress at the SEC tournament is intense. As we opened up our roundtable, we asked Chris where he thinks the Gators stand at this critical moment. This is a different kind of bubble than um, in the past. First of all, there's a, there's a new metric, the net, that is similar to the RPI, but it's, it's got a little wiggle room to it. And that, you know, you look around the country, a lot of these bubble teams are actually in worse shape than, than Florida is. Uh, Florida is at 9-9 nine nine in the conference. And if the conference is as advertised, and it probably is one of the top four in the, in the country, you know, break-even record in, in a conference like that should put you in a position. But historically, 17 wins isn't, isn't good, excuse me, isn't good enough. I know Florida has gotten in before 17 wins. I remember when they got in in 1995, the year after making their first Final Four. I think they were at 17 and 13 that year. Something tells me they, they should win two games in the SEC tournament and should feel great about themselves. That would require them beating Arkansas, a team that's uh, got the same 17-14 record, a team that historically has been a poor road team under Mike Anderson, but has been pretty good away from home this season. I, they beat LSU at, on the road like Florida did. They played Kentucky uh, very close at Rupp Arena, much closer than Florida did. Actually, I think they they're in the game in the last minute and a half. I think it was a one possession game and losing by four. And then after, if if they were fortunate enough to beat uh, Arkansas to get an 18 win, 18 looks a lot better than 17. I think I play LSU as the number one seed in the in the tournament. They would have a, a double bye, and you know, Lord knows what's going on in their heads. They, they celebrated like they won the NBA title, re- regardless of all the stuff swirling around the program when they did clinch the uh, that first Southeastern Conference title in ten years over the weekend by beating Vanderbilt at home. They were partying like it was 1999 or 2009, <laughs> I guess you could say. But um, Florida certainly certainly has shown it can play with LSU, beating them on the road and then taking them to over two overtime games, lost by one here. Um, I see a lot of bracketology, like you, like you referenced, Adam. Where you know some people have them in, mm-hmm. uh, some people have them uh, in the playing game, some people have them just on the outside. I think I think more bracketologists have them in than have them out. I don't know what the thinking is, unless it's the fact that their strength of schedule is the, is ranks number one in the Southeastern Conference. I think their non-conference strength of schedule is number one among Southeastern Conference teams. 
Um, and yet I keep looking at nine games against ranked teams and they're one and eight. They're not going to beat a ranked team if they beat Arkansas, but they'll have a chance to beat uh, a ranked team, obviously, when they play LSU and anybody else after that. So uh, it's there for them to do something with it. But the inconsistency with which this team has played, the inconsistency with which uh, their quote-unquote uh, star players, whether it's Kayvon Allen or Jalen Hudson specifically, have played, you know, makes it really difficult to project what may or may not happen. Kayvon Allen has historically been pretty good against Arkansas, his home state flagship college, um, the one that, you know, he had a chance to go to and end up going to Florida. Um, he was very, he was good against at Arkansas this year. Last year, they, when uh, Arkansas beat them in the SEC tournament, Kayvon wasn't very good in that game. He has scored, I believe the number is uh, 12 points during this uh, three-game losing streak. Hmm. That's unsustainable for a leading scorer and the, and the number uh, six scorer in school history. So they need much more out of him, and they need Jalen Hudson to – Jalen Hudson was great, obviously, against LSU. We talked about that last week, the 33-point outburst. Then he took a step back, I guess, somewhat at, at Kentucky. Uh, he was, I think, 5 of 16 from the floor, uh, 0 for 5 from 3. Need some kind of middle ground from him and a lot more from Kayvon Allen for the Gators to make any kind of run. I think a two-game run in Nashville. We'll be talking about the NCAA tournament next week, maybe possibly playing in the playing game, but uh, maybe better than that. Looking at this draw for Florida and, and going under the idea that they need to win two games, it does seem like it's set up pretty well because of the LSU situation. We know Florida can play LSU tight. They've done that multiple times. You have no idea where LSU's mindset is with the Will Wade stuff going on. So I'm curious, Chris, just if you could comment on that situation as it relates to LSU and, and what we might see from them if Florida does get another crack at them. We don't know if Javante Smart will play. He was suspended for that uh, last game against Vanderbilt. He hit a couple big threes uh, in the game that LSU won in Florida. He had 15 points in that game. He's a really, really good player. Uh, but obviously, he's he was the player mentioned in those uh, in those wiretaps. Uh, Will Wade, uh, I, obviously, we're not going to see him. I don't think. I, I don't think they're going to suspend him for the regular season ender and then uh, and roll him out in the in the conference. Um, you know, I, I, again, you don't know what's going on in that locker room over there, but they sure looked like they were okay playing status quo. I mean, they played very well against a bad Vanderbilt team, and they celebrated uh, like they won a championship, which they had. Um, a championship, albeit that could easily be a strip from them in the not too distant future. Sure. But in terms of the draw, I mean, it's just a Florida just matches up for some reason, even though LSU is a much bigger team than Florida, for some reason, they playing pretty well. It's a much better matchup than playing against Kentucky. Maybe there's a mental element to it. I think it's a better matchup than playing against Tennessee. You just look at how the games have gone so far this season. They played the top three teams. In the in the conference, of course, it, it always ends up for Florida ends up always playing when they when they roll out those double games, those home and home extra home and home series. Uh, last few years, Florida's end up playing one of the better teams against Kentucky, against LSU. They're going to be overmatched rebounding wise. They're going to have to play over their heads in those games against Tennessee. I think they just get out out athleted, but somehow they're, they're for some reason they they play okay against LSU, and that's with Kayvon Allen just being uh, one for six from the floor, only didn't take any shots after halftime, including one big one that he neglected to take. So um, I think uh, Mike White did a pretty smart thing. He they they had the regular Sunday off after Kentucky and. He knew he was going to give them Monday off also because these guys are pretty pretty exhausted. Obviously, the season's been very long, been long for everybody, but it's worn on these guys. They didn't know that they were going to have a, a Monday off, and he called him and he goes, "We're not practicing today. Do whatever you want." And they let he let him shoot a little bit, so kind of had two days off uh, to kind of let their bodies regenerate, if you will. 
Um, I'm anticipating uh, they'll go to Nashville with a little more bounce to them. You know, Florida over the years has not been good in the SEC tournament. Um, Florida has not been past a Friday, the SEC tournament, since they won the whole thing in 2014. So um, it's usually not a good match. Maybe this year ends up being being different for them. For their sake, it probably needs to be different if they want to uh, keep playing in the uh, and send this uh, season in a direction which everyone strives for, which, of course, is the March Madness tournament. It's always tough to predict how freshmen will react in tournament situations. What's the expectation for this group of freshmen, as important as they are to what Florida's done, being in a one-and-done scenario for the first time? I think you go by the track record of what uh, those guys have done so far. Uh, Andrew Nemar in his first game at Kentucky in front of 24,000 people. He had eight assists and just one turnover against a really, really good defensive team. Um, he was also one for eight offensively, but I think that had more to do with the challenges that Kentucky's defense and the size presents, you know, especially given how he's been playing lately. But I mean, if Noah Locke appears to struggle in the SEC tournament, I think it relates to the injury he's been dealing with for the last six weeks to two months, that hip groin thing that's, you know, it's really bad some days and not so bad other days. And he hasn't shot great since it's really kind of uh, started to hinder him along the way. Keontae Johnson, if he doesn't get in foul trouble, he's going to going to be pretty good. He's an undersized foreman, uh, but Florida's been undersized for the last two years. And I think he's really – his trajectory has been really good. He's, his motor's gotten better, which was a problem early in the season. He was pouty a little bit for not playing as much as his uh, freshman sweet mates. Now all three of them are starting. And, you know, going to the first SEC tournament, I think that's maybe one of the biggest positives of this whole team is be, the baseline that those guys have set for themselves – you know, once they, they have a, a full off season to deal with Preston Green and to deal with the, the training staff and Duke Warner and those guys and work on individual instructions, uh, that's these guys are going to be a lot better. And you think about what's coming in next year. Now, obviously, these are conversations we could be having next week or two weeks from now or preferably from this team standpoint, three weeks from now or so. <laughs> but uh, I think you got to be happy. I know John Calipari after the Kentucky game and he goes, he, he goes, you know what? He goes, I'm I'm watching Florida stick around. And I just realized. They got three freshman starters, too. I said, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, a lot, lot of guys knew. And I'm sure, you know, John Calipari knew that. But I think he was saying the Kentucky freshmen are different than Florida freshmen every year. But mm-hmm. I think to his point, um, tr- I'm translating. Florida's pretty good to have three freshman starters that aren't in anywhere near the uh, the marquee guys that we have. I think that's what he was saying. And I think it was a, a compliment to uh, to Florida's young players and this yes, this will be their first uh, one and done situation. Their first time in a tournament atmosphere, playing that many time, that many games in a row. So uh, uh, we'll know a lot more about um, where these guys are and after this weekend. Okay, let's talk a little bit of football now. It's back on the radar because spring practice is firing up, and also, of course, the big news that came out late last week about the Florida Miami game being moved up. But Scott, let's start with. What Dan Mullen had to say at his press conference to open things up in terms of where the focus is just a little over two months removed from the incredible success of the Peach Bowl. Well, the focus from listening to Mullen is to be better than they were last year. And the message in camp is to be better than 10 and 3 in a trip to Atlanta. You got to work harder, you got to work smarter, and uh, you got to continue to improve. I think that's, that's where his mind is. I think that's where he wants his team's mind to be, uh, whether it's quarterback Felipe Franks or, or the kicker. I mean, they made great strides in year one under Mullen, but, you know, you look at what they did to get past Georgia and the SEC East. Uh, when those two teams met, Florida was in the game there late in the third quarter before turnovers did them in. 
but you just sense that Georgia, you know, was a better team that day. And uh, I think there's a gap there that for year two to be a success, they, they need to close some. And obviously the best way to do that is to beat Georgia and get to the SEC East. Uh, he's not setting any kind of goals publicly like that. It's certainly not at his first spring uh, press conference, but you could tell that he wants more. He wants his players to want more. And, you know, he was asked about Felipe Franks being kind of the set starter. He basically said, look, I don't think there's any position on this team that's, that's set. So he's using that mentality, that coaching method to make sure that no one gets complacent from where they were last year. Because to get where he's talked about since he took over, there's a lot of growth to be had. That starts whether it's Felipe Franks or the offensive line is a huge question mark going into uh, his second season, I think the two position groups that he he addressed that he'll be watching close is the offensive line because they're losing four starters there, mm-hmm. and then the linebacker. You know, you know they lost Voshan Joseph, their leading tackler. They have David Reese back, which is a big uh, veteran to have in the middle of the defense. But around him, there's a lot of unknowns. Whether it's James Houston, the, the true freshman, Mahamud uh, Diabate is a guy that you figure we're going to see some this spring. You know, Colin Johnson is transferring, so that's a, a fifth-year senior who added some experience back there. Uh, he's apt. So typical spring, you know, you're always wanting to see competition. Uh, you want to see what physical gains the players made in the offseason under the uh, strength and conditioning staff. Uh, but most importantly, what Dan Mullen, his tone was what he wants to see is guys still fighting to get better and to take the program to the next level. It was also the first chance for him to really address the Florida-Miami game and that officially being moved up a week and kind of opening the entire college football season. So what did he have to say about that and how that affects Florida's season and, and their preparation? I think the biggest twist he was asked about is the three buys. And he said, well, ask me in December. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it is unusual. In recent years, you, there have been some two open week seasons, but having three is certainly a, a unique one that I don't think anybody really knows how to how it's going to pan out at this point. You start with Miami, you have to, you know, you're going to start practicing early. They still don't have the details from the NCAA on how that's going to impact their practice schedule. There's just a lot of unknowns with that, Adam, because you play Miami, then you have that two weeks into your home opener, and then you have a seven-game stretch you're playing every week, then you have a bye week before Georgia. And you play three games and another bye week before Florida State. So you're playing two of your your biggest games of the year at Georgia and Florida State with an extra week to prepare, really, until they go through that seven-week stretch and then you have those last two bye weeks. We won't really know how the bye weeks are going to impact the season until that point. So we're kind of in the same boat as Dan Mullen. We'll, you know, we'll, talk, we'll have a better clue in December, but right now it's just a mystery. One Gator who is no longer on campus, but was a few years ago, is Trenton Brown. And it's really interesting when you talk about a guy like Trent Brown because he was one of those players that there was so much hype around coming into college, just mammoth size and strength, and then never really developed into the great player at Florida he was expected to be. But as you see a lot of times in college with these guys that are physical freaks, maybe they just develop a little bit slower in terms of getting up to game speed because now he's in the NFL and this week he became the highest paid offensive lineman in the history of the league, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it makes you wonder why he didn't play more when he was here. 
uh, you know, because <laughs> obviously, obviously he's a he's a really good player, and obviously, uh, uh, you know, good for Trent Brown. Uh, um, maybe he wasn't good enough to be playing as as much as he should have been when he was uh, wearing a Florida uniform back then. But um, he obviously uh, made some gains once he reached the NFL, and those gains obviously translated to his bank account. Um, the four years, sixty six million, I believe, it was the number. Of course, as an NFL guy, the number you always got to look at is the guarantee. Because um, the guarantee was was thirty six million because that's the number you know he's getting at the end of the contract it's got an absurd kind of annual salary which he'll he'll never get if he's playing great at the time they will resign him and restructure it forward but it, that's thirty six million dollars you know he's getting give or take another five million worth of uh, salary uh, you know I I'll be honest with you Adam I was stunned at the AFC Championship game when I was watching that and. You know, he's flashed the starting lineups, and there was Stretton Brown playing Tom Brady's protector. I mean, I I lost track of the guy for for obvious reasons because you know he wasn't that notable when he was here. But uh, the fact that he's been able to stick around like that, and I imagine I can see John Gruden. I can see this guy walking in, John Gruden. Go, Man, you are one big dude, Trent Brown. <laughs> John's always had an affinity for gigantic uh, offensive linemen, and. He, he certainly got one, and, uh, and he, he can hang out out there with uh, with Townsend and Pinheiro and you know do gator chomps together at a at training table come training camp. <laughs> I'm just glad we found a way to get Chris's John Gruden impression into the podcast. At least at least once a month, we need that, right? That's fine. Yes, yes. Uh, it, it's either that or Spurrier because they're both so easy. <laughs> Moving outside football, and uh, one of the things we always talk about in regards to the Florida Gators, the strength across the entire program, the number of different teams that are winning championships. And this past weekend, indoor track added another national championship. And, Scott, it's just amazing what Mike Holloway has done with that team. And they're just they're the dominant program in the sport, indoor, outdoor, you name it, they're winning national championships. When you recruit athletes like Grant Holloway, Adam, that makes it a lot easier. I mean, we're talking about one of the great all-time Florida track and field athletes. He's uh, making a strong case for perhaps being the greatest in history. Uh, he sprints, uh, hurdles, long jumps. Um, going to be one of America's uh, up-and-coming Olympic stars for the next decade. He scored enough points in the, uh, the NCAA indoor meet album to finish sixth in the team standings. So that shows you how dominant he was. And I mean, Mike Holloway, what can you say about this guy? He's built a program, produces great athletes time and again. They're at a place now in the country in terms of track and field. I mean, they are one of the two or three elite programs in the country because even in recent years when they haven't won it, they've usually been in the top two or three. And now they're going to try to take the men, what they did in the NCAA indoor into the out, outdoor season. And they should be in competition for the national title there. I mean, Mike Holloway, I know they've won both men outdoor and indoor under his direction. I think it's been a while maybe since they've won both in the same season. But don't be surprised, Adam, as long as Grant Holloway stays healthy and the rest of the team, you know, picking up some points around him. Don't be surprised at all if we're talking about them adding the NCAA outdoor title in two or three months. And stay tuned because after Chris and Scott wrap up here, you will hear from Grant Holloway, the uh, the man of the hour, who is breaking records and looking like he's going to be someone Gator Nation is proud of for a very, very long time. Uh, moving on to baseball, Scott, it was a really big night for the Gators on Tuesday 
welcoming in Florida State. A lot of storylines around it. Mike Martin's last time coming through Gainesville. Florida trying to keep up the winning streak. And ultimately, they did that in a very odd way as they ramp up for SEC play. Yeah, very unusual night at McKeithen Stadium, Adam. Uh, I'll start by saying Mike Martin got a standing O. How's that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he obviously before the game uh, is a big deal. Mike Martin, you know, people out there know that he's in his 40th season at Florida State as head baseball coach. He's retiring and it's always a nice gesture on Florida's part, you know, before the game. Kevin O'Sullivan presented him with a customized golf bag and a gift basket that included a Canadian cruise, you know, a river cruise. Wow. In the off season. Uh, uh, so, you know, a really nice, uh, you know, upcoming retirement gifts on the, for Mike Martin. And then the game started and it was a, it was one of the crazier games I've ever seen just because in the middle of the fifth inning, uh, Gators were down six, nothing uh, after a grand slam uh, by Florida state's JC flowers. And, you know, you got the impression that, well, this Mike Martin's going to come in his last ever regular season game against the Gators in Gainesville. He's going to leave uh, pretty happy on the bus ride back to Tallahassee. And then, of course, the uh, what the bottom of the fifth and sixth innings happened. Uh, the Gators sent 23 batters to the plate in those two innings, uh, scored 13 runs on only eight hits. I mean, it was it was some uh, odd stuff going on, Adam. Uh, some errors, some wild pitches allowed a couple of runs to score. Uh, some key hits, too. Kendrick Callow had a big hit. Uh, Will Dalton chipped in with an RBI dribbler. And then two runs uh, that put him ahead scored on a throwing error before the state's pitcher. And, uh, and then the Gators just didn't let up. Callow had a grand slam later. And uh, Blake Reese came off the bench, pinch hit a two-run homer in the bottom of the eighth. And the next thing you know, the score is 20-7. to seven. And to give a little perspective on on what, how unusual that is. I mean, Florida and Florida State, we all know they've been playing baseball a long time. Since 1980, when Mike Martin got there, the Gators had only scored that many runs against his team one other time, and that was in his 10th game as head coach at Florida State. Uh, Gators went over there and won 21-6 to back in March 8th, 1980, mm. and in his 2719th game, the Gators uh, get 20 runs against him, and uh yeah, it was a, one of those nights that you'll remember for different reasons. Uh, just a quirky game. It was nice to see the ceremony for Martin. And, of course, these teams are going to play a couple more times uh, before the end of the year. So it's not the last time uh, that they're going to see Mike Martin. But uh, as Kevin O'Sullivan said afterward, you know, now the Gators turned their attention to the SEC, which starts on Friday when Mississippi State comes to town, and uh, they're uh, they're not going to be able to take any of those runs with them. So it was just one win, one night, but one that uh, people are going to remember if you were there. Moving on to this week's PAT, last week we talked about the incredible contract that Bryce Harper got and whether or not that was deserving of being the biggest contract in the history of North American sports. Now I'm thinking about the flip side of that, and I'm not trying to, to hate on Nick Foles, but I just don't know what planet we live on where Nick Foles gets $88 million, $50 million of which is guaranteed. So mm-hmm. my question is, and maybe Nick Foles is the answer, but what is the most ridiculous contract you've ever seen someone get who was not deserving of that kind of love? Oh, boy. Um, you've seen a lot of contracts where guys got too much money and then that really, really underperformed it. But I, I believe I read... Uh, Bryce Harper is married to the 
Philadelphia Phillies for the next 13 years, right? Mm -hmm. For $330 million. God bless him. Good for him. All that stuff. (laughs) I read that two years after he's done, Bobby Bonilla is still being paid by the Mets. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I don't remember that being a particularly uh, happy marriage. I do remember being a particularly uh, controversial contract for its length and its and its dollars. And I'm pretty sure he uh, he underperformed. And this is going. I mean, this is years ago. I mean, I think it must have been like a thirty million dollar contract or something. I still remember when Magic Johnson signed a twenty five year, twenty five million dollar contract, and that was at the time just a a ridiculous number. But I mean, the guys that pop in my head, Albert Hainsworth, another Washingtonian, just I, I think he got a hundred million dollars, and I think he made two tackles over two years when he was there or something. <laughs> he came in, he was fifty pounds overweight, and I actually was covering the NFL then and went to a Washington practice, and Mike Shanahan hated him so much he wouldn't even let him practice. He made him go over and run wind sprints while the team was practicing. Mm. And here's the guy who's the highest paid defensive player of all time, I think. Those are good choices, but to me, the the worst professional baseball contract in history exists right now. And I think you could make the case that this is the worst contract in professional sports history. Uh, Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles. I mean, hmm. this guy is entering the fourth year of a seven-year, $161 million contract. You got to remember, this is a, a guy who once hit 53 home runs, uh, which helped him get this contract. But in the last couple of seasons, his batting average is its worse than mine when I used to play softball. I mean, <laughs> last, last year, he hit 158. Mm. This wasn't a part-time player. This was an everyday player. He, his batting average in 2018 was the lowest in Major League Baseball history for a player who qualified for the batting title, which requires 502 plate appearances over the course of a season. He hit 158. Now, he's tied. I mean, in the Orioles, they went, they lost 115 games. I mean, they're the worst franchise in baseball right now. And it's, you know, Davis, his downfall really has corresponded with the franchise's downfall because he was on some good Baltimore teams in recent years when they made the uh, American League Championship Series and back-to-back playoff appearances. But the last few years, I mean, it's a, it's been in decline and no one more so than Chris Davis. I mean, it's been painful to watch the guy. He He's become the poster boy of the, what, the three-outcome game, the home run, the strikeout, or a walk. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's the poster boy right now. So, Chris Davis, I think it would be hard in the history of professional sports to find a player as overpaid as he is currently with the Baltimore Orioles and and based on production. And they kept him around, Adam, because they got four more years of him. So, (laughs) you, you hope that, okay, maybe he somehow finds his way out of this funk. But I think the funk is here to stay. Those are good answers, uh, and a lot of them kind of centralized up in that uh, that D.C., Virginia, Baltimore. Maybe there's something in the water up there. No one knows for sure. But one thing I do know is that you guys are not overpaid. So make sure to check out Chris and Scott as they will be putting up all their coverage this week on FloridaGators.com. Scott will have baseball cover, the opening of SEC play. Chris, of course, will be at the SEC tournament in Nashville. Follow him on Twitter for updates as well, at GatorsScott, at GatorsChris. Gentlemen, thank you so much. All right, thanks, Adam. You're absolutely right, Adam. I'm not overpaid. Have a good week. (laughs) Every once in a while, a true phenom comes through the University of Florida. Whether it's Tim Tebow, Abby Wambach, Bridget Sloan, or countless others, you simply know a next-level talent when you see it. The latest name to join that list will almost certainly be Grant Holloway, as the junior track and field star appears destined to become an Olympic mainstay in the years to come. 
We spoke to Grant shortly after his stunning performance at the NCAA Indoor Championships and began by asking him what it means to be just the second man to ever score 26 points at the championship meet. Man, it sounds wonderful, you know. <laughs> it sounds wonderful, but I mean, it's it just comes with the territory of when you do three, four events at a high level, that's, you know, that's the outcome that you will get. You know, most people usually go to nationals for one or two events. But, uh, I mean, last year, for example, I only went to nationals for two events and I scored um, 18 points plus a relay. So, you know, to come back this year and ask, well, not really ask Coach Holloway, but like, you know, kind of get thrown into the 60 out there after I ran 651, it was kind of just, you know, it was like, all right, I'm up for the challenge. I'm fit. I'm in good shape. Um, I feel strong. Just to score the points, you know, it's it's self-explanatory. You put the work in, and then you're going to see what, what comes out of it. I remember talking to you and Coach Holloway last year after you won the indoor title, and I asked, with all the championships that you guys keep winning, what made that one special? So let's do that exercise again. What makes this title unique in your mind? In my mind, just if I think about this title alone, you know, each year, you know, you have something that happened or that something that you wanted to prove or you know, vice versa. But, you know, just going into this year, it was just so much hype around other teams. And, you know, nobody on this University of Florida campus once, you know, thought that we were going to lose, once thought that we weren't capable of, you know, going out there, doing it the Florida way and winning. In the media, uh, it was a, a press conference and Coach Holloway is really, really strong minded. So like in the press conference, they were saying like, what does it take to win a team title? And I guess people were hinting at that, like, okay, you, ha- you got, you have Grant Holloway. So, Therefore, you you automatically going to win. But without me, we still would have placed fifth. The team brought in another 27 and a half points. So it wasn't just me. It wasn't, you know, the Grant Holloway show that, you know, most people, you know, were handing around or trying to say. But, like, literally, the team, including myself, we all went to that track meet and, you know, did it the Florida way. We, we put that Florida across our chest. And no matter who was in our heat, who was in our lane, who was in our face part of the runway, we just, you know – put our foot down and you just did it to get away. So I would say just to answer that question, you know, we just came together as a team and in a sense, you know, no matter what the media said, what other other people thought or, you know, what anybody said, you know, everybody's entitled to opinion, but we just made it a fact that this weekend that we were the best team in the building. I want to take things back for you a little bit here. We'll get back to track stuff in a bit, but I want to talk about your background. Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? I grew up in uh, South Chesapeake, Virginia. Went to Grassville High School, 10 minutes away from Austin Smith, a big powerhouse football. Um, growing up, I was originally committed to go to Georgia to play ball, but fell in love with the University of Florida's campus and Coach Holloway's track philosophy. So decommitted from Georgia, come to Florida. Great things happen. Um, my, my mom's name is Tasha Holloway. She's a school teacher. And my dad's in the uh, did 22 years in the military. He's retired now. Hmm. So, you know. Just to come from that background of a teacher and a, and a military father, you can kind of imagine, you know, how it was at the house or how it was, you know, growing up facing a lot of, you know, adversity and different different type of backgrounds that, you know, some some of my friends had. So, like, it'll be like some afternoons or some of my friends are going to the park and I have practice and I'll ask my dad after practice, am I allowed to go to the park? He'll ask me who's going. It'll be a group of kids who really weren't up to no good and he'll tell me no. You know, at the time, I never really understood why he said no or understood why I couldn't hang out with those kids. But, you know, as you grow up and you get wiser and you become more accustomed to, you know, what's right and what's wrong, it kind of makes sense why your, you know, your father and your mother said, no, you can't, you know, hang out with those people outside of school. But um, 
just to have that military background from my father, you know, no wasn't an answer. You know, it was either find a way or make a way. And then I always had the loving mother. I mean, I'm blessed to have both of my parents still happily married. So I would say, you know, just one, having both of my parents in my life made a huge impact on everything that's working out now. You know, even though I haven't seen my dad in about three, four months, I know he still loves me. I know he still prays for me. I know he's asking God to continue to watch over me with everything going on right now. You know, of course, he still wanted me to make the right decision. But um, I got two tattoos tatted on me, two of my dad's quotes. And it said, um, one says, if you have to think about it, don't do it. And then the other one uh, states, uh, you got to wait a moment for your moment. Wherever I go, wherever I'm at in the world or wherever I'm seeing to go to, you know, I always got my father with me and I always got my mother with me. So it is all going to work out. And I'm, I'm glad both of them are in my life. I imagine with that discipline that you have, sports help give you some structure. So how early on did you start playing sports and, and what were you most involved in? I can remember just uh, playing football at a young age and, you know, after football season, you translate to track season, you know, just going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then, you know, finally getting, you know, accustomed and used to, you know, all right, these are the two sports I'm going to make it big in. These are the two sports that I want to, you know, do multiple stuff in. And, you know, just, you know, having those sports and, you know, having that military and the teacher background, my, my father was always like, look, if you don't have A's and B's in your report card, hey, you're getting snatched from this team. Or if you don't do good on this test that we study for all night, hey, you're getting snatched. Like, you know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just I couldn't play or do any type of physical activity, sports, play outside, recess, unless I took care of the classroom. You know, that still goes to what was going on right now. When I was getting recruited, I was looking for another father figure in my life. And it's kind of funny that Coach Holloway, with the last name <laughs> and everything, you know, that's like basically like another father in my eyes. But, you know, just to even even to come and train with another family member, like he has permission to bench me, sit me at any track meet if I'm not taking care of the classroom now. It always helps out when, you know, my mom, my dad and Coach Holloway are all on the same page. And it just makes it 10 times easier because, you know, Coach Holloway knows me as a person. And he also knows if Stan would do this to Grant, I'm allowed to do it. And, you know, my dad gave him full responsibility to do anything that would make the team better as well as make me a better man. So it's interesting. You mentioned a few minutes ago about being committed to Georgia to play football. So now we're talking to you and you're at Florida running track. How did one become the other? It was kind of a funny story because this is when Mark Rick uh, in Georgia was all on the hot seat. You know, all that stuff was going on. But then he went to Miami. Now he's retired. But, um, you know, the other recruiting coordinator who was recruiting me, Brian McClendon, when all that was going on, he went to South Carolina. So, like, it was kind of I, I want to say it was God's way of telling me, like, look, you need to go to Florida because nothing was going on in Florida. They just won a national championship in 2015. They won SEC. So it was like, it was just laying out all the, you know, all the possibilities and the right keys for me. At the time, I felt like I made the wrong decision because I don't like going back on my word. But, you know, my dad always said business is business. You got to do what's best for you. So called Coach Rick up, told him I was like, look, I want to go to Florida and run track. Nothing against your program. I love you and their recruiting style. It really, like, really touched my heart. But, you know, I just feel like I can make a better living out of running track. And three, four years later, look look at it now. <laughs> running hurdles, American record holder, NCAA champs. It's It's a blessing, man. So, you know, having those trials and tribulations that I had to go through, you know, it all it was all worth it. And I wouldn't change it for nothing, man. How much do you still think about football, though? Do you miss it? Are you watching sometimes thinking, oh, I could have made that play? I mean, do you, do you get that itch or, or not really? Of course. I mean, like anybody who plays a, who played a sport at a young age always gets that itch. You know, I get the itch 
we were they were throwing hats at when we won nationals and uh, I did a little football catch you know kept one foot in bounds and then <laughs> I was telling I was telling coach Holly I was like I still got it I still got it. <laughs> you know you, you just do simple stuff that you know reminds you of when you play ball or just get those little small little glimpse of like oh I just did uh, athletic play that I could use on the track or I could I just use the athletic play that I could have used on the football field you know you just every person I would say always has that you know that itch that to get back to that original sport but I came here to run track and also be a part of a great track and field program when I committed to Florida and told Coach Holloway I told him I was like wherever you need me to make this team better or just you know to make me a better person. I'm here for it. And he utilizes me in any any way, shape or form. I'm curious from a team standpoint, what teammates have had the biggest influence on you in your time as a Gator? There's multiple people, you know, Josh Walker was the former school record holder here. He was the NCAA champion. Uh, Eddie Lovett, he trains here now. You've got Karan Clement, uh, Olympic gold medalist. And Christian Taylor comes back. Omar Craddock, Will Clay. I can keep, I can go on and on of Gator greats and Jeff Demps, you know, you got so many people mm-hmm. who, who motivate you and inspire you, you know, not to get complacent. And I, I tell everybody on social media all the time, like Peyton Arderdahl. I just told him the other day on social media, I was like, yo, like you're doing a wonderful job, man. Don't get complacent and, you know, keep up the good work. You know, the, the things that people tell me, I try to share that knowledge and give it to someone else. You know, we got freshmen coming in, you know, I just want to be able to share that wisdom that I was given when I'm here and still still while I'm training here today, you know, and share that upon um, other people. But there's so many Gator greats. I can I can go on and on with the list who, you know, inspired me and helped me out. Even with my freshman year, I had Eric Futch, TJ Holmes. You know, I had two 400 hurdlers that went one two the year before in 2016 to follow them. And then, like, when they leave, it's my chance to lead this team to a national title that indoor season, you know. It was great. We have a wonderful group of kids now. So with the freshmen coming in and then everybody else who, you know, looking to get recruited by Florida, you know, I just want to be the influencer that, you know, the other greats were on me. You mentioned a lot of names there. I'm sure they they might fall into this category. But when you're looking at guys that you admire, who stands out? Who's someone you look at and say, I want that guy's career. I want to follow that path. The guy I'm getting ready to say, the two guys that I'm, three guys I'm getting ready to say, don't even go to Florida. You know, Alan Johnson, Terrence Trammell, David Oliver, those three names. David, I started watching David Oliver when I was probably in a junior, senior in high school. So, you know, he started wearing short shorts. So I was like, yo, I'm wearing short shorts all because David Oliver's wearing short shorts. <laughs> you know, you got Alan Johnson. He dominated the hurdle circle for years and years at a time. And then you got Terrence Trammell, someone who I literally just followed the footsteps. You know, I just did a double like he did. It's the small things that make this world go around. And, you know, watching them on YouTube to actually meet them in person, it's crazy to really even think about. So talking about the Olympics, 2020 is a lot of the conversation surrounding you has to do with Tokyo. How much are you thinking about that? And what does that process look like a year or so down the road? To be honest, I haven't even paid it no mind. I got a track meet next week at FSU that I've been worried about. Uh, we got we got four by one and long jump. So really, you know, when the time comes to start thinking about Tokyo, I'm sure I'll start thinking about it. But, you know, really this year, you, you got we got to try to keep it within a year's perspective. We can't be thinking about Tokyo and we've got another world championship in Doha. First things first, let's take care of Doha. Well, first things first, really, let's take care of Florida State Relays next week. <laughs> and then as we move forward, you know, we got Florida State Relays. Then we got Florida Relays. Then we go to LSU. 
Then we go. Then we have another meet back at home. And then after that meet back at home, we got SEC championship, regional championship, national championship. Then if everything goes right, you know, you got USA's and then Doha. So it's just so many other meets that you have to think about before you even get to Tokyo. couple of final things for you, Grant. I want to ask you a question about records. Uh, first part of it is with all the records you've broken, which one means the most to you? And then the second part is what record is still out there that you're hoping to break in your time? <laughs> well, the second one, I think you already know the answer to that one. I just think you want my, you want me to say it again, but the, the record that still trumps my mind every single day I'm out here training is 13 flat Ronaldo Nehemiah. But then, um, to get that record, I'd be the first collegiate ever to run 12, nine. You know, that's something Alan Johnson never did, Chance Jamel, David Oliver, you know, the three people that I looked up to that I, that I never did. They say I'm on, you know, 13-8 pace with, with, with the time I just ran. But, you know, it's all about executing your race plan and, you know, going out there and, and trusting and believing that you that you are who you say you are. But then, you know, the one record that really that I love to this day is not even the American record that I just, that I just set. It's definitely the 60-meter hurdle record when I beat Omar McLeod last year. For me to break an NCAA record off of what, two, three months of training, it's unbelievable. For me to do that, have surgery, come back that within January, February, run that time, and you know, start my hurdle resume over again, up and over again, it's 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 a blessing. I mean, 7:35 is. I saw that coming long before season even started this year. Like I said, I'm gonna make sure I'm healthy. I'm gonna make sure I'm in good shape. And I'm going to take care of the little things, whether that's giving up wine or, you know, doing 400 meter runs every day. I'm going to make sure I, I, I do that. But um, those two things, you know, the record outdoors and then the record indoors is two things that always trump my mind. You obviously are a worldly guy and you strike me as someone who probably has a lot of interest. So I'm curious off the track. What do you enjoy? What do you like to get into? Um, off the track, you know, um, I, I do a lot of volunteering around Gainesville community. All uh, right. Mentor two kids at uh, Littlewood. It's a small elementary school right up the street from here. And then um, I really don't go out as much just because, you know, I like to save my energy and use it towards some- something else. But um, I don't go out as much. I really just sit at home and play PS4 all day with my roommates. But, I mean, that kind of shows, you know, who I am as a person. I, I mean, I'll go out, but I use my energy elsewhere with, like, you know, helping elder kids or, you know, vice versa, just staying in the room and just playing the game. Last question for you. You mentioned what's coming up. So I'm curious, as you transition now to the outdoor season, what are some of your expectations and how do you reach those for yourself and for the team? For myself, it's another top 10 list out there for 110 hurdles. So um, why not get in the top 10, uh, have 10 of the top 10 times and, you know, in, in, in the 110 hurdles. So, you know, that's also also a goal. I mentioned 1299 is also a, a big goal that I want to do. But then also, Let's just continue to be Gators and just work hard every single day, day in, day out, on and off the track, and let's go get another national title. Um, Coach Holloway and I, we've been, you know, talking, where can I be, where can I go to help utilize some of this stuff on the track, but then also it's it's outdoor season. So he knows and I know that the main goal this one season, we got what from – we got to March to June to run 1299. So he knows that main goal. I know my main goal. Coach Mann, Coach Welty. And Coach Peterson all know my goal, and that's probably the, the, the only goal that I really have for myself is to run 12.99. And if I got all of them on the same page, and I'm on the same page as well with them, I feel like the sky's the limit, and we can go, we can go accomplish it.
Well, Grant, I would certainly not bet against you, and I wish you a lot of luck to make that happen. Thank you so much for your time, and good luck the rest of the way. Hey, God bless you, man. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. With so much going on in Gator Nation this week, be sure to check out FloridaGators.com and follow along on social media for all the latest news, scores, and more. So until next week, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you in Nashville.